Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your hosts, Anna Wolfenden and Derek Weston. Hey, welcome back to the Food and Faith Podcast. This is Derek Weston, and today's guest is Rabbi Jonathan Narrell. Rabbi Narrell founded and directs the Interfaith Center for Sustainable Development. Raised in California, he received his rabbinical ordination in Israel. Jonathan is co-author of the best-selling book, EcoBible, which shines new light on how the Hebrew Bible and great religious thinkers have urged human care and stewardship of nature for thousands of years as a central message of spiritual wisdom. He has spoken internationally on religion and the environment, including at the UN Environment Assembly in Nairobi, the Fez Climate Conscious Summit, and the Parliament of World Religions. He co-organized 10 interfaith environmental conferences in Jerusalem, New York City, Washington, D.C., and Atlanta. He is the lead author of three books on Jewish environmental ethics and also co-authored three reports on faith and ecology courses in theological education. Before we get started, I'm excited to let you all know that Maya and Anna's book, The Just Kitchen, Invitations to Sustainability, Cooking, Connection, and Celebration, is available for pre-order wherever you get your books. And if you have a favorite small independent bookseller, please encourage them to carry the book. Okay, here's my conversation with Rabbi Narrell. Rabbi Narrell, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to be here with you. Uh, so we like to begin our conversations with this question of what is your geography? What are the uh, lands, the places, the people, the food, music, culture that have shaped you to be the person that you are and, and led you to the work that you're doing? Well, I grew up on land in Northern California that the native Sakhalin and Akalani's peoples lived on several generations before my family came there. I grew up with an organic garden that I gardened with my mother and a big orchard. And I climbed the fruit trees and picked the fruit, apricots, plums, pears, olives. And we also had a big creek and an old growth oak tree that the Native Americans harvested the acorns from. So that was really the geography of my upbringing. I also grew up going to a Jewish summer camp called Camp Tawanga, which is next to Yosemite. And that was where I was first introduced to uh, the connection between food and faith and between religion and ecology. Yeah, tell us a little bit about that. What what kinds of things were you hearing in that camp that were making those connections for you? Because I, I, I don't know that uh, we often hear about uh, youth camps making those connections for people. So I'm, I'm really interested in what what kind of things were you hearing in, in, in that camp? Well, it was a unique camp. I mean, by virtue of it being near Yosemite, so that itself was special mm. because we'd go on backpacking trips in Yosemite. It was also near the middle fork of the Tuolumne River. So being able to, to go into a river was special. Uh, it, it actually combined, um, you know, some aspects of, of Native American spirituality. Uh, and in recent years, they've actually brought in um, some Native American elders to, to speak with the campers. Um, and the, the previous director had a special interest in Judaism and ecology and was, was one of sort of the early thinkers in the Jewish ecological movement back in the 1970s and 1980s. And she helped to, Deborah Newbrin, Rabbi Deborah Newbrin, helped to connect these topics for the campers. That's great. Um, and it sounds like just based off of virtue of, of your, uh, the place where you grew up. I mean, I, I, I went to seminary in Northern California and just kind of knowing 
the beauty of that part of the country. And it sounds like your parents and your your kind of background just kind of in that space would have kind of automatically made you a little bit more receptive to hearing some of those sorts of things. I think so. Um, and although, you know, you, you might think that that in Northern California, you know, that there's this deep connection between religion and ecology and in the house of worship in the synagogue I, I grew up going to, it, the, the, the synagogue building was situated among old growth oak trees that were many hundreds of years old, but we never really went out to those trees and, hmm. and connected our religious practice with the, you know, God's creation and, and going into nature. We, we, we did a little bit in one of the parks that we would do a, a ritual for during the, the Rosh Hashanah, a Jewish New Year service. Um, but, um, but for the most part, I, I got this from, you know, from different sources and including the summer camp that I mentioned. Mm. So, so beyond camp, where, where did you find those connections being made um, most strongly for you? Where, where were you, where were you hearing or seeing people make these connections between uh, your practice of Judaism and, and ecological ecological concerns? Mm -hmm. Well, when I was in high school, I, I took a course uh, at an evening Jewish studies program in Walnut Creek, uh, connecting Judaism and ecology. And, and so that was, that was one place where I saw it. And, and as part of that course, we saw the movie Koyana Swatsi, which is a, a Navajo word for uh, life out of balance. And, and that, that, that movie had an impact on me. It showed nature in regular speed and then fast forward. And in general, nature on fast forward, you know, it, it looks okay. You see the clouds moving faster, the rivers flowing faster. And then it showed uh, urban technological society in regular speed and then fast forward. And, and that looks out of balance. It looks mm -hmm. crazy. Um, and, and then when I was in university, I also had some teachers who, who I was able to study with on the connection between religion and ecology. And, and then during my seminary study in Israel, I was also able to, to seek out teachers who were able to help me with this connection. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, so I want to I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, the Eco Bible. Tell us a little bit about the um, <laughs> uh, no pun intended, but tell us a little bit about the genesis of that project. Um, what 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 brought uh, the, there's a lot of thinkers, a lot of scholars contributing to this commentary, and I'm really interested in and in how that got started. So I studied in <clears throat> environmental issues in college, and uh, and then after completing a master's degree, I came to Jerusalem and studied in several Jewish studies centers called yeshivot. Um, and because I'd come from, you know, sort of an environmental background and, and studied, took an, I took a number of courses on environmental studies. When I started looking at ancient Jewish texts in the, in the Bible, in the Mishnah and the Talmud, uh, I started to realize that there were deep ecological insights that were emerging from these texts. And it partly had to do with the fact that the, the rabbis that were living over the past several thousand years were connected to the land. Uh, one of the great rabbis from a thousand years ago, Rashi, was a vinter. He had his own vineyard. Uh, and you know, many of the rabbis were, they weren't full-time 
Torah scholars. They were rather, you know, did their profession, whether it was, you know, as a farmer or a wagon driver or milkman, whatever it might have been. Uh, and, and so the texts are suffused with things that I found to be of ecological significance. And so I, I took notes and I, I and others typed up my notes. And then I realized that, wow, uh, here I, I, I have an ecological commentary on the Hebrew Bible in my notes. Um, and then it just became a question of compiling it and editing it. Um, you know, because many people who I encounter when I tell them what I do, they say, well, religion is one thing and ecology is another thing. There's no connection between the two. It's they're like separate worlds, separate universes. But so the idea behind Eco Bible is to show that ecological concern is organic to the Bible and organic to religious consciousness. Yeah, uh, there's there's a couple of great things in the introduction to the first volume that I wanted to just kind of highlight. Um, you wrote, at this moment in history, we need a major infusion of energy specifically to help faith groups inspire behavioral change for sustainable living. And I'm, I'm, you know, the work that I do, I also find that we're, we're, we're swimming upstream some ways in having people connect these dots between what happens on the land and what happens with our faith. Um, where do you, where do you see, you, you've already mentioned a little bit that you, you, you face some people seeing these come to, kind of worlds separated, but where do you see the major roadblock for people having these understandings of where the connections are between um, our faith and um, the world of the scripture uh, and what's happening in in our current ecological crisis? Mm -hmm. Well, I think one of the roadblocks is that many religious adherents look at the ecological movement and at environmentalists as these sort of different people, they, they sort of otherize them. That, mm. And, and it, it partly has to do with the fact that the environmental movement emerged in the 1960s and 70s at a time when the hippie movement was ascendant, the free love movement. And, and so at that point, I think many, you know, religious leaders and, and religious figures said, they essentially said no to the ecological movement. They, they grouped mm. it together with these other movements that they found to be antithetical to religious values. Mm -hmm. and, and to be honest, as a, you know, I, I identify as an Orthodox Jew and, and I'm opposed to the free love movement. I, mm. you know, I'm myself part of a committed marriage and I support the institution of, you know, of, of monogamy. Uh, um, and so, but, Part of what I've come to realize is that, well, ecological concern is deep within religious consciousness. And so, and so it's, it's about overcoming this roadblock that it's not that environment, it's not that caring for God's creation is this like tree hugger thing. R rather, caring for God's creation is part and parcel of spiritual practice. Mm. Yeah. And I, I I think there's this there's this wholesale uh, dismissal of um, ecology and ecological movements as as just sort of a progressive thing, and if you're not likely to have progressive values, then you won't uh, necessarily um, 
you know, it, it's it's sort of the black and white that we've done, particularly in, in the United States around uh, a lot of our politics that you you're all in on one side or on the other. Um, there's a couple of things here that I, I really love. Uh, again, I'm just I'm just kind of picking some things from the intro that you wrote for for the for the Eco Bible. Um, and and there there's some some pieces that you say about how religion can help aid these conversations. Um, you say first, religion can persuade people to consume in moderation as they find true satisfaction in spirituality, community, and family. Second, religious teachings help instill foresight and long-term thinking. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, religion embodies hope. And I just love to spend a little bit of time with those those ideas because I think it it actually it actually helps to um, give a framework for how, in some ways, the ecological movement doesn't work without a spirituality to it. Um, and, and if there's not actual uh, a spiritual component to it, um, it, it, it there's there there seems to be something lost and something hollow. So I just I would just love to hear your your hear you just kind of riff a little bit on some of those things that you feel that religion brings to this ecological movement. Mm-hmm. Amazing. So you know, I, I, a couple of weeks ago, I was at this uh, COP twenty seven UN climate conference that took place in Sharm el Sheikh, Egypt where there were 45,000 people who registered for the conference. And among them about 650 lobbyists from the fossil fuel industry, including a number of senior executives. So um, the the fossil fuel delegation was actually second only to the country delegations in terms of the number of people as part of it. And there were also maybe 40 clergy there. Um, So for every 12 fossil fuel lobbyists, there was one clergy member. And I'm now involved in efforts to try to have a dedicated religions pavilion at COP28, which is planning to take place in Dubai, United Arab Emirates next year. And I think that religion can can bring a lot to this conversation. And and I actually believe that the ecological crisis is a spiritual crisis. It's not just about the birds and the bees, the trees and the toads. It's about how we live as spiritual beings in a physical reality. And, and I also think that unless religion gets on board in addressing the ecological crisis, we're not going to be able to solve it. You know, it, we're not going to solve this with Teslas alone. Uh, it, it requires, you know, because the root issues here are about greed, apathy, short-term thinking, and instant self-gratification. And so the root solutions are about humility taking responsibility, long-term thinking, and finding pleasure in family, community, and spirituality. And those root solutions are ones that politicians and business people and scientists aren't able to deliver. Only religious institutions can promote those spiritual solutions. I think think that's really true uh, that especially businesses and politicians are are so much in the business of instant gratification, so much in the business of of the quick fix, and so much in the business of um, those things that we can have now and instantly. And so much of, of what we're talking about when we think about um, what are actually going to be the solutions, what are actually going to be the things that that bring about change, they are they are long term. They're not instant gratification. They're not quick fixes. They're things that require us to be um, 
dedicated and require long-term thinking and require us prioritizing those things that really matter, like family, like community, like other living creatures. And I think our faith gives us the resources uh, to, to, um, to speak on these things in a, in a little bit uh, more eloquent way. Um, so one of the things as, as, um, as I, as I became aware of your work, one of part of this conversation at COP27 was this idea of 10 universal climate principles. Um, would you be able to talk to us a little bit about what those, what those principles are? Sure. I would be happy to. So I was involved in a collaborative effort with the Elijah Interfaith Institute and Peace Department and the UN Faith for Earth Coalition. And we held events in different places in the world that promoted 10 universal principles for climate justice. And we held an event, an event on Mount Sinai in, in Egypt. Uh, we held an event uh, in London, a climate repentance ceremony that the Elijah Board of World Religious Leaders participated in and, and organized. And so, you know, it was, and, and so the Elijah Board of World Religious Leaders, which is a group of about 80 senior religious figures in the world, had a process over several months of trying to put together 10 principles. And you know, so I'll just share with you a couple. So the first principle is, is that creation is not our possession. The human person must recognize this and find his or her rightful place in relation to this fundamental fact. For some of us, this leads to a sense of gratitude for God's gifts and for the gift of life itself, wherein humanity takes its rightful place as partner and co-creator in advancing the life of all creation. For others, creation itself is sacred. Therefore, we recognize human responsibility to love and protect nature. So with each of these principles, there's a, you know, sort of a more abstract spiritual principle, which relates to climate change and climate action. And then there's a practical action or several practical actions that can be taken that sort of flow as a consequence of that spiritual principle. And, and for our listeners, is there a place that they might be able to find these 10 principles online? Would they, is there a website that they could go to and, and kind of find them listed? Yeah, they're, they're listed on climaterepentance.com. Wonderful. I, I, even, even that title, I, I, I find incredibly meaningful that where we need to start this conversation is from a place of repentance. Um, that feels really important to me. Talk to us a little bit about I mean, this very easily from your background could have been, um, you know, you could, you could be, you could be running the Jewish center for nature and sustainability. You could be, you could be, this could be very much focused around um, uh, informing others of your faith and informing others uh, of, of, of like beliefs where you're not having to do some of the work of, of translation. What is what is the importance of interfaith partnership in doing this work? Uh, it, it it's oftentimes com more complicated. It's oftentimes messier. Uh, but but why is why is interfaith partnership so so important to the work that you're doing? So you know the the Jewish people number about 15 million people, and that's about half the population of Cairo, uh, or any other major mega city in the world. Um, so the Jewish people alone are not going to be able to solve the ecological crisis, obviously, 
Um, and through a number of, of experiences I had in university and after, I came to realize the value of interfaith work. We're all on the same boat. We're all on this together. And as these 10 universal principles for climate justice indicate, we can actually find common cause in regards to ecological sustainability. You know, there, there are differences between religions and we're not trying to create one religion. However, we can come together around these commonalities because there is one earth and this is God's creation and, and we are entrusted to protect it. Uh, you know, the, the events that we did um, on Mount Sinai and with these 10 universal principles, they generated a fair amount of pushback from, uh, especially from more conservative Christians in America who, who made about 50 videos um, that were generally sort of antagonistic to what we did and that received a couple million views on YouTube. Um, and, but, you know, but, but and, and one of their sort of criticisms was that the, sort of an, a general opposition to interfaith work. Um, now, you know, part of the, the move to interfaith is to say, look, you're Christian and that's fine. And I'm, I'm fine with your being Christian and this person's Muslim and that's okay. They can be Muslim and practice their religion and be a good Muslim. And, and I don't believe that I have, you know, all the answers and that my path is the only path, but rather I respect that you have your own religion and your own religious practice. And, and, and I mean, Judaism is a non-proselytizing religion. So, um, but, you know, but, and I actually think that at this moment in history, uh, you know, religions should stop proselytizing because we need to focus on living sustainably on this planet at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how many practitioners of each religion there are if we turn this earth into a place that's not livable. And so, so that's why my efforts are focusing on bringing people together from different faiths in order to find common cause and promote solutions to the ecological crisis. Yeah, that's really well said. Um, I, I think that, that it, it's, it's frustrating as a Christian to hear that so much of the pushback that your work has received has come from fellow Christians and particularly of Christians who just can't seem to find the value um, in interfaith work. But I, I also speaks to, um, you know, what, what you're saying, it also speaks to this value of humility, which has to be a part of this work. Um, the, the humility to say that one faith isn't going to have all the answers, to say that one faith isn't going to, um, to provide all the solutions, but if we're willing to set aside the theological differences, the scriptural differences, and, and work on solutions um, from a place of humility, that we might actually uh, get some work done. So um grateful for your standing in that space, because I know, I know that that interfaith space can often be a really uh, difficult one uh, to, to work and, and to seek solutions. Um, so this is, this is the food and faith podcast. And uh, one of the things that um, I have found to be a challenge and um surprisingly still to, to this day uh is is that people don't necessarily um immediately make the connection between what's going on with our ecological crisis 
and food. And I think for many of us, that feels very obvious. And, and in fact, as, as, as we're going in, as I was going into the eco, eco Bible and going into Genesis, uh, much of your commentary on Genesis is about food. Um, so I'm, I'm just interested just to just broadly first to kind of hear uh, how you make those connections um, in your mind and in your faith between what's going on in the ecological crisis and what we put on our tables. Sure. So, I mean, a lot of the ecological challenges we're facing boil down to how we eat and, and how we source our food and how we grow our food, how we transport our food, what types of food we eat. And the topic of food is a, a theme in the Bible. You know, it's, uh, we, we are what we eat. Uh, or as Oscar Wilde said, since Eve ate apples, much depends on dinner. <laughs> well said. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, it, it's, as I was writing the Eco Bible Commentary, it, it just, this is what came out. You know, it's there, it just time and again, the, the theme of food and agriculture uh, come comes out in the Bible, and and when you were when you're at in spaces like COP twenty seven, how much of the conversation, uh, how much of the conversation centers around agriculture and agriculture's impact on the climate? I, I feel like oftentimes um, the the uh, feels like a lot of the climate climate conversations are about. Uh, carbon offsets and carbon production and maybe not so much about the agricultural impact on 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 climate so how much in in those spaces are, are people talking about food there, there was some conversation about food there was a food pavilion at cop 27 which is great to see um, and at the same time the you know probably the most common lunch item that was served inside the cop were cheeseburgers and hamburgers, <laughs> um, which, you know, for, for those of us who, um, you know, seek a, a plant-based diet, it's, it's sort of a no brainer that, a that an environmental or climate conference should, should be a vegan conference or at least a vegetarian conference. Um, and so it, it was part of the conversation, but it wasn't necessarily the, the main part of the conversation. I would say that, you know, the main part of the conversation is focused on fossil fuels mm -hmm. and, and how, you know, whether or how we can, you know, get off of fossil fuels, um, which is still very much a debate. I mean, this last co climate conference ended with no mention of phasing out fossil fuels mm -hmm. and with very heavy lobbying by the oil industry and the gas and the coal industries as well as by the countries in the world, of which there are, I don't know, maybe 20 of them that you could call petrostates, where the number one source of, of GNP for that country is selling of fossil fuels, and, and therefore their government is very focused on that. So the topic of food, you know, it, it, it was there in the pavilion, but it wasn't in the food pavilion, but I wouldn't say it was front and center. Mm. That's really That's really interesting and kind of confirms a suspicion that I had uh, that that these 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 conversations aren't have happening um, in quite the places uh, that I that I would want them to be had. Um, 
we had uh, Ellen Davis, uh, who wrote um, Scripture, Culture, and Agriculture on the show. Uh, she's obviously been a big influence for a lot of our work. Um, and and I, I think people underestimate how central food is to Scripture and how central food, and, and not just food, but food and land. Uh, are to scripture and, and because I think particularly for um, for Christians in the United States, you know, in the last couple hundred years, um, we kind of have had a disembodied faith. Um, it's it's more about our spirits. It's more about an afterlife. It's more about uh, the sort of untangible thing, and we're not we're not very focused on the concrete and and i'm i'm just really interested in in and thinking through um how do you bring people back to these concrete concepts of land of food when when so often i think all of our faiths have become so spiritualized and so disembodied i mean so one of the ways that my organization is trying to do that is by distributing eco-bible to hundreds of pastors priests and rabbis and over the past year and a half we've been collaborating with a lutheran pastor at the lexington theological school in kentucky uh, reverend dr leah shade and she's written uh, two-page eco-preacher resources for christian pastors based on eco-bible uh, these resources are meant for to, to enable pastors to teach and preach about issues of ecology relating to the Christian lectionary reading for that Sunday. And so we've been, she's been writing these once a month and we've been distributing them to about a thousand people, mostly clergy. So, you know, that's one of the practical ways that we're trying to, to bring these topics, you know, into the preaching agenda of the mainstream. And for listeners of the show, Leah Shade has been on this show a couple of times. Uh, she did a, uh, we did a short green lectionary series for, um, for Lent and Easter, and she was very helpful in, in helping us uh, point those, um, connect those dots, uh, those points of connection between what's happening in the scripture and what's happening um, uh, in our ecological crisis. And she is a, she's a great resource, great, and a good friend of the show. Tell us a little bit about the origins of the Interfaith Center for Sustainable Development. Um, how did that how did that come about? And beyond the the ten principles that you have you're outlined here, what what other work is is your organization doing? What other programs are they are are you putting out? Sure. So the Interfaith Center for Sustainable Development began over twelve years ago. I founded it, and it emerged actually, I was having a conversation with a, a close friend who's Catholic and um, in, in California and uh, the, the president of the Julia Burke Foundation and, and they wanted to support this effort and, and they've been supporting it for the past 11 years uh, together with other supporters. So that's sort of the, the genesis of it. Um, in terms of our other work, so we have a number of projects. Um, as I mentioned, we're now working to organize a religions pavilion at COP28, the UN Climate Conference in Dubai, which is actually quite an ambitious undertaking because there hasn't really been a robust religious pavilion at any of the previous 27 climate conferences. 
and, uh, and there's just a lot of uh, bringing people together uh, that, that's involved. Uh, we're also working on a faith-inspired renewable energy project in Mozambique, where we're collaborating with a renewable energy platform called Gigawatt Global, together with uh, the Anglican Church in Southern Africa to deploy a commercial scale solar field on church lands in Mozambique. And Mozambique is one of the most energy poor countries in the world. Most of the energy it produces is through hydroelectric power, but it sells it to South Africa. And most people in Mozambique don't have access to reliable supply of electricity, let alone renewable energy. So that's another project that we're working on. And then here in Jerusalem, um, I do webinars and in-person sessions for a range of clergy, especially Christian clergy. Uh, so we have a close relationship with the Swedish Theological Institute from the Church of Sweden, as well as the Church of Finland. And uh, we're engaging Christian clergy from around the world on, with some training seminars uh, to teach and preach on religion and ecology. I wanted to go back uh, just a second to that project that you're talking about in Mozambique, um, because one of the one of the conversations that has been recurring um, uh, on this program and, and other conversations that that I've been a part of is sort of the use of church and and faith based land. Faith communities own a lot of land. Um, and and the ways in which we use our land is is often either um, furthering the ecological crisis or in ways that that can um, uh, combat this. So so kind of hearing about this project, I'm I'm wondering if you have other thoughts on on ways that faith communities can be using their land and using their land in ways that can be um, a, a, a helpful part of this effort to to um reduce this the our impact on the climate yeah so installing solar panels on roofs of houses of worship is one practical thing that people can take another is to do a whole energy audit in the house of worship and to then undertake actions to, to green the institution, both the physical building as well as the educational programming. Uh, my, my organization also is the co-organizer of the Los Angeles Faith and Ecology Network. We're collaborating with California Interfaith Power and Light to convene a monthly meeting of green team leaders and clergy in the greater Los Angeles area. And uh, we recently uh, submitted an interfaith letter of clergy to Archbishop Gomez of the Catholic Archdiocese in Los Angeles, calling him to end uh, oil drilling on a Catholic-owned site in South Central LA, which is um, causing pollution to uh, mostly Black and Latino communities in, in, in South Central LA. Um, so that's, that's another project that we're involved in. And uh, yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Um, and I want to ask what gives you hope? Um, and, and, and we always say that we're talking about not, not so much a hope that, um, ignores these big issues that the world is facing, but a hope that kind of gives you a resilience to, um, step up and, and, and continue to do the work that you're doing. Yeah. So it's, it's a great question. And I would say, you know, I, I would, I'd like to quote from something that Rabbi Jonathan Sachs of Blessed Memory, who was the chief rabbi of 
uh, United Kingdom for many years that he said, and this is something that I actually begin uh, the introduction to Eco Bible with. Rabbi Sachs said, hope is a human virtue, but one with religious underpinnings. At its ultimate, it is the belief that God is mindful of our aspirations with us in our fumbling efforts, that God has given us the means to save us from ourselves, that we are not wrong to dream, wish, and work for a better world. Hope is the knowledge that we can choose, that we can learn from our mistakes and act differently next, next time. And, you know, in the, in the Bible, in, in Genesis chapter 25, verse 30, it says that Esau said to Jacob, pour into me some of this red, red pottage for I am faint. Therefore, he was named Edom. And in the Jewish tradition, this verse is, is sort of understood as, un, as an act of unrefined eating because he just wants to pour this soup into him. He's so famished. And, um, but there's also this idea in, in the Jewish tradition of tshuva, which is repentance, that we can act differently. And that's why, that's why this part of this effort that I mentioned is called climate repentance. And, you know, what gives me hope is, is the, there's this awareness that the ecological crisis is messaging to us to change. It's messaging to us to live at a higher vibrational frequency, to live at a higher level of spiritual awareness. According to the Jewish tradition, a person has five levels of soul and consumer society today is operating at that lowest level. Hmm. But as we raise our level of soul awareness and we connect more spiritually and to family and community. So what is attractive to us now about these sort of, you know, short-term instant self-gratification pleasures, it's not going to be attractive to us. And so that's, that's what gives me hope is the belief that there can be, that the ecological crisis can help us towards spiritual enlightenment. Mm. Yeah, that is that is um, incredibly hopeful, actually. Um, so how can people connect with you? How can they connect with your work? Um, what are some ways that they can uh, get involved or participate with any of the work that you or the, or the organization uh, is doing? So we, we have a blog that we put out several times a week. And so you can subscribe to receive our blog subscribe to receive our newsletter, follow us on social media. Those are a few ways to get involved. And we also have uh, what I think is the largest video collection on religion and ecology on YouTube of over 330 videos uh, from many different faiths, many different religious leaders speaking about food and faith and ecology and faith. So that's another way to you know, learn more about this topic. Um, and also Eco Bible is available um, in bookstores and on Amazon. It's also a, as an ebook. So it has commentary on 400 verses in the Hebrew Bible and is, is another way to sort of plug into the, the eco theology that we're putting out. Fantastic. Well, Rabbi Narrell, I'm incredibly grateful for the work that you're doing. I'm incredibly grateful for your taking the time to share with our audience this work that you're doing. And um, I, I just really appreciate. Um, sort of the heart and insight that you're bringing to this work and the ways that you're working to um, to call um, faith communities to to repentance and the ways that we we have not been engaged in this work. So thank you so much for your time and thank you for the great work that you're doing. 
You're welcome. It's really great to be here with you. And I'm also grateful for the amazing work that you do in helping to amplify the message of, of, of people in the movement, trying to enable the next generation to inherit a livable, thriving, sustainable, and spiritually aware planet. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Food and Faith Podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest School of Divinity, Plain Song Farm, The Garden Church, and The Keep and Till. Editing is by Derek Weston and music by Paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.